Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the first Deep State Radio of the Biden-Harris era, or at least the beginning of the beginning of that. Uh, I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where I am joined by Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello. Rosa, <laughs> Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hello, hello. And Rosa, why don't you introduce our fourth guest? Okay, our first guest in a special Deep State Radio nepotism episode is my brother, Ben Ehrenreich. And uh, my brother is the author of the recent book, which if I can find it, I'm going to pull out and, and show you all, called Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap to the End of Time. So that's even more cheerful than... Uh, what we might talk Did about. Did you just a pull bit that today. out from the leg of your chair? Was it holding up? Your, no, it was on, it's on a side table. Oh, I see. My chair doesn't have a leg pocket, but what, <laughs> no one has a leg pocket. Um, anyway, um, but Ben is a journalist. Uh, he's the winner of a National Magazine Award for his previous work, and his most recent article is up right now on the New York Times Magazine site and was a feature article in this weekend's New York Times Magazine, and it's on societal collapse, which is my favorite topic. So in addition to wanting to just do what we always do here on Deep State Radio, which is plug <laughs> our friends' books and so on, uh, I thought, I thought, well, gee, I've been kind of lonely with the crown of entropy here. So I, I needed to get, I needed an ally who could be even more depressing than I am. Yeah, the, the title of the article of the New York Times Magazine is How Do You Know when society is about to fall apart. And all I could think of while reading it was imagining the two of you running around a house as little children. What a depressing place it must have been. <laughs> it's did like you, an Edward Goring book. I mean, did you sit there and play Apocalypse? I mean, what did you well, do as children? Kind of. R is for Rosa, who imagines the apocalypse. B is for Ben. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. There were some apocalyptic things about our, our household, but that's- I grew up on Long Island. I don't know if I need to say anything else. Oh yeah. No, well now I understand why you're writing about the collapse of civilization. Um, <laughs> but we don't really need to talk about our childhood. That's You're, you're <laughs> steeped in it. Well, we'll get to the collapse of civilization in a little bit, Ben. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, but I think we should hit uh, a couple of news items first before we settle in to a discussion of whether we're, we should be optimistic or pessimistic about where we are. Uh, the first news item I'd like to pick up on, I'll turn to uh, Corey, then Rosa, Ed, or Ben, if anybody else wants to add on it, feel free. But uh, the President of the United States, um, such as he is, 
um, just fired the defense secretary, which, you know, happens, happens to him more often than other people. Seems a little strange in the timing department, but what do you think, Corey? Uh, it's shockingly irresponsible for a sitting president to disrupt the important work of transition uh, and to disrupt the important work of protecting country during a transition. So uh, it's terrible that the president, that President Trump did this. And all is bad is he has replaced uh, as the replaced Secretary Esper with an acting secretary who just in January had been confirmed as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, a job four levels lower in the bureaucracy than Secretary of Defense. Oh, um, such good news for all low-level civil servants. <laughs> ah, but he wasn't a civil servant, Rosa. I'd be in favor of the civil servants. <laughs> any their... any low-level bureaucrat can be magically elevated to Secretary of Defense. All you need to do is suck up. There have only been two, before this administration, there have only been two acting secretaries of defense since the position was created in 1947. And there have been four in the Trump administration, which tells you, my friends, how manifestly unserious the president of the United States is about the national defense. This is well, why would, why encouraging would this... challenges to our security and, and it's yet one more sign of why so many people, so many uh, people in the national security establishment, including so many conservatives, supported Joe Biden for president. So, so Rosa, and, and I'm not going to dwell on this much longer, but why would this asshole do this? Which asshole? Well, the, the asshole in chief. Oh, right, that asshole. Um, well, there is a benign theory and there is a paranoid theory, and you know me, you, so you know which, which theory I, I obviously am drawn to. Um, the, the benign theory is just that, you know, Trump's in a rage. Um, he, he can't handle the election results. He's in denial, and he's just lashing out randomly at anyone he's, you know, anyone he perceives as insufficiently uh, loyal to him. Um, and obviously we know that Esper's head has been on the chopping block for a while, ever since Esper made the mistake of saying that he actually did not think it was such a hot idea to you know, send active duty military troops in to suppress peaceful protests over racial justice. Uh, Trump has been quite, quite angry at him. Um, so that's the benign theories. There's just more random Nazi lashing out. The, the paranoid theory, and, and in one of our transition integrity project exercises, I don't remember which one anymore, um, there was sort of a Saturday night massacre um, uh, equivalent um, when Trump was trying to do things like invoke the Insurrection Act uh, or deny the election results. I can't remember what was enraging him in, the, in, our, in our hypothetical exercise. And he was getting pushback from uh, people, including Esper, in the, in the game. And so he fired Esper in order to put a more pliant person in place uh, so that he could uh, continue whatever evil, evil, evil plot he was up to. And I can't actually recall which scenario this was, so specifically what the evil plot was. 
but yeah, the, the paranoid scenario is that obviously Trump is not conceded. Um, he's not only going on with all this completely frivolous litigation to challenge the election results, which is you know getting dismissed time after time in every every court he's going to, uh, but he still seems to be he's angry at Fox News. He, he's trying to use the even further right violent extremist media to kind of whip up a bit of a frenzy. Uh, you know, so 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 there there are some really dark places we could go with this. Um, um, I hope I hope as usual that my paranoia is is unjustified. Uh, well, I, I oh, and by the way, in our scenario, Esper was fired and replaced by Rick Rennell. Wow, yeah, that <laughs> that would be worse. Um, Always yes. by Rick Moranis. No, yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would actually be okay. That would be better. Honey, I Shrunk the Defense Department is a movie I wanted to go see. <laughs> well played, David. Um, yeah, thanks for setting that up, Ben. Um, Pay me later. Uh, uh, okay, I before we get to Ben, I'm going to turn one question to Ed, and then it'll lead into where we go with with the remainder of the discussion. So, Ed. Um, we, you know, you and I had lunch right before this and we were talking and I was like, we went down and we were at the Lafayette Park and people were dancing and doing the hustle and um, you said you like did a drive by on your way to a bar but 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 I you know I've never seen this you know I didn't live through contrary to what David Sanger would suggest, you know VE day or VJ day. Um, and I've never seen it in result of political election, but for the past couple of days, the United States, there have been in cities and across the country, parties, dancing in the street. I happened to be at the White House when the president's motorcade came back from the golf course and everybody was singing at him in not a terribly supportive way, um, but it was cheerful. You know, it was not like, it was the Secret Service was at no point concerned. The crowd was just happy. Um, uh, what should what should we read into all of this this out, sudden outbreak of happiness in America? Um, well, I mean, we should we should, as I'm sure we have, join in. Um, we we uh, crossed town um, to the sound of a thousand honking horns, and then, of course, like many other people, um, opened a magnum of champagne and consumed it, um, and felt we had earned it. Um, I have to say I heard the news before I saw the AP uh, news flash come across my, my iPhone that they'd called Pennsylvania. F before then, my latest and much more reliable and much more rapid news service is my 13-year-old daughter. And she FaceTimed me and she was screaming and jumping up and down. And so I could barely sort of catch her image, let alone what she was saying. But her sense of catharsis and joy and uh, tears that this guy had been defeated, this guy that since she was eight, you know, has dominated the political scene, um, was the trigger for me to realize what an extraordinary emotional moment this was. I mean, that for, for her, it's a day she will never forget till the day she dies, um, because she had this sort of thing in her head when she was eight, which I misleadingly, you know, repeated some version of the big bad wolf thing. And it assured her we lived in a brick house in which the Hillary campaign would win. And uh, when she realized I was wrong, um, she realized the wolf could blow down brick houses. And this for her therefore was psychologically a, a, a huge moment. And until then I hadn't really appreciated quite how huge. 
Well, you know, I, I was pretty happy. Uh, I'll admit it. Um, and as usually happens in my life, I'm happy until I speak to Rosa, or in this case, read something by one of her relatives. And so Ben, I, you know, I, I got this article that Rosa sent along. And, it, and it's a great article, by the way. And I think it's a fascinating article. And it, it deals with a lot of issues that I've found interesting for a long time about, you know, this broader historical issue of the collapse of civilization. But buried within it, you know, there was, you know, the obvious question that an American living in the time of Trump reads when they read this article is, is he writing about us? Are these experts you're talking about talking about us? And, you know, I'm, it's not exactly the same as the collapse of Mayan civilization, um, but in it, there, there, was a, there was a point where you just talk about in complex societies that that um, one of the signs of, if, of, of, of potential collapse is that the factions in the society no longer are willing or able to work together to, to solve their problems. They're not, you know, they're, they, they fall out of alignment in a way that makes it impossible to do the adaptation that's necessary for society to survive. Um, so, you know, I guess the, the question is when you go and you read about this and you write about this um, and you look at where we are at this particular point, are we adapting or is the, 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 the fact that, you know, our Senate, our House remain on the obstructionist side and half the country doesn't even believe in the same reality as the other half of the country? Are, are, we, are we at a point that's at a risky point? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I started working on this piece um, in, I was living in Spain, which is where I usually am. And I was under lockdown there, um, confined to uh, you know, my small apartment with my partner and our kid. And uh, you know, what better way to spend a lockdown than to read about the collapse of society? Um, I started reading um, work by this guy, Joseph Tainter, that the article focuses on and calling up all of these academics and trying to get a sense of the lay of the land. And most of them, you know, and of course, like my concern was, was, was absolutely immediate. Like, is this the, the straw that broke the camel's back? Is the, you know, there were no, there were no airplanes in the sky anymore. Um, you know, there, were, there was no flower on the shelves of the, the toilet paper. So clearly collapse was imminent. The Spanish were not as obsessed with toilet paper as Americans. That was a, a curiously American obsession. Society's going to collapse, and so we might as well get Bounty and Charmin. Um, Britain was just as yeah, badly yeah. smitten with. Um, There's some secrets of, of personal hygiene from the Middle East that we can share later. Um, but in any case, huh. um, the yeah. So I was thinking entirely about, um, you know, is this it? Um, and most of the academics I spoke to, um, you know, are very cautious academics. They're, they were archaeologists and um, historians, most of them. Um, and of course, are, are, are therefore extremely hesitant to make uh, direct analogies. But most of them, and also all of them are academics, um, so they're quite comfortable. You know, they, they were um, doing Zoom classes, if, if any, and they were not personally facing, uh, they were tenured, they were not personally facing. Like here in Harvard Yard, civilization's doing doing very well, thank you very much. Okay, but they were worried nonetheless. Um, <laughs> they were, you know, they were, they were scared. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the, the, 
failure of institutions to uh, communicate with one another, the failure of different frag- uh, sectors of society to communicate um, is certainly something that a lot of them talked about. Bigger than that um, was inequality. I mean, pretty much any of them that, that were willing to make analogies to past societies um, said that one of the, the clear markers is when you have a society where, you know, in a, that is com- where there are different realities between different sectors of society, um, where there is a larger and larger um, sector of society that's completely shut out from the opportunities that a very small number enjoy, um, that society is not going to last too long. You know, you can you can repress things for a little while, but not for that long. Um, and we certainly have a society like that. Um, and you know, the, one of the interesting things that that most folks agreed about, and I'm, I'm you know, generalizing enormously, and and the academics will all be annoyed with me if they're listening, um, is that there's not like one factor which pushes societies to like rapidly simplify or collapse. Um, you know, it's not like you get a pandemic and a society collapses. It's not like you have rapid climate change and a society collapses. Um, you know, many societies have survived these things. Many societies have survived occupations, invasions, revolutions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when certain kind of, when too much adds up, um, they, then it becomes too much for society to withstand and things start to cascade is the, um, is the, the word they like to use. So, Corey, you know, for five years now, you've been the holder of the tiara of optimism, and you've only really been up against one holder of the thorny crown of entropy. And now you're confronted with the entropy family dynasty. Um, (laughs) um, And so when 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 you hear this, what's your reaction? Uh, my reaction is that when two people as smart as Ben and Rosa are worried, there's absolutely a reason to be worried. But I think the reason I am more optimistic than either of them is because of uh, the ingenuity of people to correct, to adapt, to improve on prior practice, and the especial Um, ability of free societies to experiment, to fix things, to identify problems. Um, And, and so I'm, I think I'm less, uh, less inclined to see projections of current disaster carry forward into the future. Rosa, does this bring to mind any poetry for you? Well, yes, David. Um, I was <laughs> okay, for those of you not watching this in real time, Rosa put into the chat um, so a passage Sorry. of poetry, and that's why we're all laughing. You're giving away my secrets um, because everybody else who listens to this thinks I'm able to spontaneously quote poetry. Uh, without any prompting at a moment's notice. Um, but though, though this did remind me of a little ditty by the uh, late Ogden Natch, uh, and it is called A Caution to Everybody. And it, here's how it goes, it's only about six lines long, so I'll recite it in, in its entirety. Uh, Consider the auk becoming extinct because he forgot how to fly and could only walk. Consider man, who may well become extinct because he forgot how to walk and learned how to fly before he thinked. Um, 
And, you know, so Corey, I mean, I, I, I hear what you said. I'd love to agree with you, but because it is my job not to agree with you um, on matters of optimism versus pessimism, one thing I took away from your article, Ben, um, in terms of your interviews with these academic experts on societal collapse, was that ironically, it's our ability to innovate um, that is to some extent our doom, right? That what we do as, as human societies, you know, that this, this story of, um, and I should actually just let Ben explain it better, because I'll give, I'll give the, the Rosa quick takeaway version, but Ben, you should, you should tell me if I'm getting this wrong. The, the, the tragic story is that human societies start off simple, they have problems, they innovate, they get creative, they make things more complicated in the process, they get more creative, they innovate some more, things get more complicated. And it's that very creativity which leads to greater complexity, which in turn ultimately kind of collapses under its own weight because we just aren't smart enough to manage the complex and innovative systems we create. Is that accurate, Benj, or have I totally mangled that? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, this is um, a guy named Joseph Tanger who kind of wrote the book on the collapse of, of complex societies, of, of societal collapse generally. And he actually, in his more recent work, uh, like specifically addresses the um, argument that Corey's making, which is the argument of, of you know, technological optimists everywhere, right? that we can innovate our way out of this. Um, and he basically says that our ability to innovate um, depends on on fossil fuels, um, that it, you know, it's not like people got smarter in the last 150, 200 years, um, but that we suddenly found this well of energy that allowed us um, to solve problems more rapidly and to build levels of complexity far more, more rapidly, which was first coal and then oil. Um, and that is obviously for a lot of reasons, um, no longer going to be available to us in the way that it has been before. Um, and because of this, um, our ability to sort of solve our way out of problems. It's not just, we don't just sort of think our way out of problems. I mean, there's huge amounts of technology that goes into this and all of that relies on fossil energy. Um, and that can't happen uh, anymore in the same way that it has in the past. You know, one of the things, and I don't know if you've gotten all the way through to the end of the article, but one of the things that's interesting is that the article begins with looking at sort of smaller, even family-based tribal societies and the complexity comes as they grow um, to a larger size um, uh, and, and become less homogeneous. Um, but as we go now, and as is addressed at, at the end of the article, we are now in a, in a, in a global community that has to adapt globally and you know, it strikes me that, uh, you know, regardless of who the president of the United States is, we don't have the mechanisms or the will to address those problems globally right now, um, which is uh, 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 unnerving in terms of the general thrust of the article. I'm wondering what you think of it. And then if you may, maybe you have a question for Ben. Um, I'm halfway through the article. Um, I got to it rather late. And I'm gripped and I'm certainly going to finish the piece. So I don't yet know about Ben's happy ending. Um, perhaps you can give that away, do a spoiler alert. Um, but in terms of your question, David, um, of uh, needing global solutions and, and becoming a global sort of civilization, essentially through globalization, you know, I guess you would have people arguing 
that we've got to pull back. We've got to move back to localized agricultural supply. We've got to um, trade efficiency away for um, safety. Um, you know, replace just just in time with just in case, and that COVID, um, you know, has has crystallized the. I guess the um, vulnerability of global supply chains. So you'll have people pushing against that, and for whom COVID is has been a useful a useful argument. But even if they succeed, we are living in a world where climate change is affecting everybody equally, regardless of whether they're contributing or not. You you know um, look admiringly at the New Zealanders, um, you know, setting net zero emissions targets. And you wonder, or you wonder how they summon the will to do it because they do it knowing full well it's not going to make a bit of difference. Materially, um, it's it's um, a demonstration effect. It's hopefully a sort of morale boosting thing to do, but um, it's not going to mean much unless the United States and China and others do the same thing. Um, my, my question for Ben is: um, the first half of the article I have read. Um, and found gripping. I mean, an extremely interesting subject that you bring out very well. Um, is you say that there was zero interest in any of these studies during the nuclear age, and I presume that's because um, this is about the cascade, as you say, the sort of collapse of complex societies. But a nuclear Armageddon was like like happening in a split second. This is going to take a little bit faster than a split second. So I presume that sort of overshadowed the study of this kind of thing. Has the supposed end of the nuclear threat, of course it hasn't ended, it might well be even worse, but has the fact that we feel that that's less of a threat than it was made this um, a more salient study amongst academics? And what's Trump done to this field? Hmm. Um, good question, yeah, I think, you know, I think in some ways, it's really interesting that the two big books um, in this field are one, um, the book by Tanty that I described, and another by, edited by a guy named Norman Yaffe um, and somebody named Cogill. Um, and they were both released in 1989. Um, so it was really like precisely when the Cold War ended um, and when that fear of, of nuclear war lifted, um, that scholars started turning their attention to these questions. Um, and, you know, whether that was a sort of, you know, I speculate in the piece was well, like, perhaps this was just a sort of hangover from the Cold War. And of course, it was just a few, a few years after that, that we started becoming um, really profoundly aware of, of climate change. Um, so it sort of starts to take shape, like in, in the parentheses between those two, um, you know, profoundly apocalyptic moments, right? Um, that people have this pause in which they can start thinking about these things. Um, and, you know, I, th I think this guy Tainter was certainly thinking um, in terms that would be familiar to anyone who lived through the Reagan administration. Um, you know, his whole deal is complexity, right? That uh, um, human um, ingenuity, the problems that societies face result in more and more complexity. In other words, more and more highly structured, um, you know, forms of, of governance, um, which themselves create more and more fragility. Um, and change is kind of interesting because you, you can make a very, you know, right-wing free market argument from that. Um, and he can also lead to, I think, quite radically left-wing um, arguments taken um, from a different perspective. As to what 
the collapse scholars think about Trump. I mean, you know, most of them, they're kind of liberal academics and they're scared shitless. Um, you know, I, I think, I think if they're studying, um, you know, the cultures of the lowland Maya, um, from a thousand years ago, uh, I don't know that Trump affects the way they, they think about that. Um, but certainly they confided a lot of, a lot of fear to me right now. Um, and, you know, I think a couple of interesting things have happened also, you know, the technology has progressed to the degree that we now have like a much, much sharper notion of the role that climate changed in, in past societies. Um, so I spoke, I didn't mention him in the article, but with this uh, archaeologist at Yale named Harvey Weiss, who's done all the study on mega droughts, who's been able to do all this, um, you know, really deep, uh, you know, um, studies of pollen samples and da, da 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 from thousands of years ago and determine that, you know, the, that the climate was never as stable as we thought it was. It was never as stable as it has been for the last couple hundred years. And there have been such severe droughts in the past that basically agricultural civilization was no longer possible in some parts of the earth. Um, and of course, we are looking at situations like that in many parts of the earth over the next few decades. Um, so all of that, I think, uh, you know, is enough to get people pretty nervous. Corey, when you listen to this, isn't your first reaction to imagine that Rosa and Ben would sit around discussing as little kids, like the existential implications of Pooh's relationship with Christopher Robin? Um, and, um, and, and, no, and, and fighting complex I'm, games of Jenga, you know, where, where we'd sort of make everything more and more complicated and then it would all fall to pieces on the ground that we'd all- I actually think happily. Rosa, I think Rosa and Ben probably recreated the Mayan or Incan societies and watched them grow more and more complex and watched how major uh, new scientific studies are showing that climate had an enormous amount to do with that. So I think they're, as you would expect, way ahead of their time. Yeah, no, I could just see them. Like most kids, you know, they're like, no, I want to be Superman or, or you know, I want to be the hero. And that you could just see them fighting over saying, I want to be Eeyore. I want to be Eeyore. <laughs> I, that's, um, yeah. Who gets to be the 12 horsemen of the apocalypse today? <laughs> That's more likely. They were figuring out which horse they were going to ride. Yeah. yeah, this is what happens when you, you know, you grow up with uh, parents who are, in fact, convinced that either the revolution or mass mass repression and oppression uh, and the revolution being crushed are, are, are imminent. One of the two. <laughs> well, I've actually been to Long Island before I blame our, our leftists. <laughs> really? I grew up on Long Island and don't have a keen sense of like the possibility of society falling apart. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> it's true well, that this was the period when, you know, today it's Florida, you know, Florida man. But back then, remember, this was the, this was, you know, Ben and I were both, of course, teenagers in the, in the 1980s. This was the age of people like, you know, Joey Buttafuoco and other demented bits of Americana uh, were all seen to be emanating from, from Long Island. No, it's, it's true. And if you guys have any pictures of your Halloween costumes as the <laughs> horsemen of the apocalypse, please send them in and we'll post them <laughs> on, the, on the website. Um, we've got, you know, our usual 10 minutes or so to go. And I don't want to deprive the audience of 
of what they really are probably showing up for, which is that we went through this kind of cathartic experience over the course of the past week following four years or even five years of, of, of dread and, and, and anger and revulsion and worse. Um, and, you know, it was a big kind of emotional deal. And I just, I just want to ask, you know, this will, this will go live sort of Monday night, but people will be listening to it Tuesday and Wednesday. You know, how do you feel a week after the election? How does all what's happened in the past week you know, make you feel about America and the kind of things we've been talking about here, uh, starting with Corey, and then I'm just going to go straight through each one of the for you. It makes me, it picks up on the argument I have uh, about Ben's piece, which is people are capable of choosing different courses and we shouldn't underestimate humans' abilities to solve problems. Um, because I feel a huge weight of dread off my shoulders that so many of our fellow Americans chose um, a path that feels to me more sensible, safer, and hopeful than the path we were on in the Trump presidency. But I also got to say, it's going to take a while for me to exercise and sleep the anxiety out of my body. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, Rosa. Well, I, I guess three things. Number one, yes, joy, relief, you know, incredible joy and relief, obviously. Um, um, thank God. Uh, things could be so much worse. And um, sex, so that's, that's, that's thing one is joy and relief. Thing two, however, is a sense of trepidation that we're, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, um, you know, Trump was, you know, wounded animals are most dangerous, et cetera. Um, I, I think, as I said, you know, one read on the firing of Esper is a pretty paranoid one. And I, it's, it's ominous that the general services administration, everybody's, um, you know, favorite and most exciting, uh, executive branch agency is, is still withholding most cooperation from the Biden transition team on the grounds that we do not have a definite election result. Um, Trump has obviously his lawyers out all over the place um, getting, getting uh, berated by judges around the country basically for filing frivolous cases, but that's not gonna stop them necessarily. Um, and, and even more ominous is I think the silence from people like uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, I, I think there are sort of two pathways now and I don't know which will go down and I sure I sure hope it's the first one again to sort of distinguish between the benign and the paranoid pathway. The benign pathway is that Trump is just lashing out, he's sulking. People like McConnell haven't said anything yet because you know as befitting the idea then you know Dan Dresner's toddler in chief theory, you know, they think, well we have to just give him a little time to calm down and take this in and, you know, and then we can, you know, somebody's going to have to break it to him. He really did lose. And then we can sort of act like a normal bunch of people and say, okay, congratulations, Biden. And Trump will never say it, but, you know, everybody else around him will say it and that the people around him will keep him from doing everything, anything demented, and we'll have a sort of semi-normal transition. The the paranoid pathway says, and, and we explored some of this, as I said, and some of these transition integrity project scenarios is that 
is that not not only does he kick and scream through the transition, you know, destroying, incriminating documents, looting the federal treasury to the fullest extent possible, pardoning everybody under the sun, um, but that he does do a sort of last ditch effort to mobilize violent extremist far right supporters, really cause chaos and try to avoid having to transfer power. I think the first is more likely, um, but I haven't, you know, I'm still a little corner of my brain is terrified about that, that, that paranoid scenario. But then the third point I would make, um, there were actually three of them. It's just that point two had an A and a B. Um, I forgot to mention the A and the B, but there was an A and a B. Um, anyway, point three, and, and this is the, the um, happy ending in Benj's piece. Maybe he can talk more about this as well. Um, you know, one man's bread is another man's poison or one man's junk is another man's gold or whatever the heck, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh. What metaphor am I looking for here, please? One man's something is another man's something else, right? One man's something bad is another man's, is something another man's feather. Um, I was thinking one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. <laughs> None of you are helping me at all. Um, anyway, I'm trying to say is that at the end of his article, Ben notes that one society's collapse is the roots of other people's rebirth, in a sense, the regeneration of, of, of other societies. And that, and maybe this, there's the asterisk for this, maybe that since we're now a global society that gets a little harder, but that as comp when complex societies collapse, uh, it really sucks for a whole lot of people, but it creates opportunities for renewal for some other people as well. Um, so there may be at least a little tiny, tiny sparkle of hope. For the successor civilization. Correct. To the United States. <laughs> Correct. That's or the earth. Super cheerful. Um, okay. and... uh, that was, I was hoping you were going to ask me to quote Ozymandias. You know, since oh, I, please do, Ed. Since I'm a traveler from an antique land. Um, <laughs> But I won't, because you know you didn't. Um, no, no, I, I, I would like you to <laughs> vast and trunkless legs of stone, please. Uh, no, I, I won't, because I'll get it wrong. I always, I always get on look, look on uh, my work, see mighty and despair, but then I end up with the statue in the wrong place and two headers. Yeah, but then you end up like huddled masses and like my <laughs> metaphor about one bread and yeah, it's a mess. Exactly, they all jumble into one long poem. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I'm delighted that Trump is losing and um, has lost. Thank you, and thank you. As I say, the psychic release is enormous. Um, the change of perspective um, and the sense of possibility is great through my own eyes as well as my daughter's generations. Um, and um, the impact I think on the world of having a president who smiles um, and means well and telephones them and sort of bothers to find out the names of their country and actually knows them already, that can't be under, uh, uh, overstated. That's really, really important. And so this is a very big moment. Um, structurally, though, and this sort of keys steers away from sort of the Corrie and more to the Ben or, or to the Rosa. Structurally, though, if he is stuck with a McConnell-controlled Senate, 
then that means that there won't be a proper stimulus, there won't be proper relief, there won't be a $15 minimum wage, there won't be $2 trillion investment in green tech, there won't be anything to back up in substance the great symbolic act of rejoining the Paris Club. There won't be um, tax increases for those earning over 400,000 or, or um, an abolition of the carried interest rate. There won't be a structural change to the nature of the US economy, at least until early 2023, after the next midterm elections. And America cannot afford this. It certainly um, um, can less not afford it than having Trump continue. Um, but, and, and there could not be a bigger change of personality and of character than between Trump and Biden and character matters. And so it's huge, it's huge, but it's also potentially very, very worrying that you can have this bigger change and nothing really is going to change in the substance of the economy for people's day-to-day -day lives because it desperately needs to change. It, it, this is a, a plutocracy that cannot, and this is where I'm in sort of Ben's camp, it cannot carry on like it is. So uh, what I would ask my um, never-Trumper Republican friends, including Corey, is, and I'm sure in your case, Corey, the answer is yes, is will you work as hard for those two victories in Georgia as you have for Trump's defeat? Will you work for the Republican Party's defeat as well? Ben, you're our guest. Corey, uh, you very quiet too, Ed. Yeah, no, I didn't, yeah, I didn't hear it. Was, I left a moment there, but sorry, sorry. Let's go. Ben, you are our guest. Um, what's your reaction to all of this? Well, I, you know, first when, when you said that the um, election was a week ago, I did a double take because it, it's been one of those um, singular twenty twenty weeks that lasted about fourteen years. Um, but I mean, when the when the news came out on Saturday that the networks had made the call for Trump. I have to confess, at first, I didn't feel a damn thing at all. It took me about 24 hours to unfreeze. Um, and part of that was that I was so depressed um, that 70 million Americans um, voted at least pretty, not just tacit consent for fascism, um, which is how I understand, uh, you know, um, the Trump administration and, and what we would be looking at if we had four more years of it. Um, and, and really for our self-destruction um, as, a, as a society. Um, and I do find the Biden administration perhaps um, singularly ill-equipped to deal with the enormous challenges that we are facing, which, uh, you know, Ed, I think um, alluded to quite well. Um, so I'm not hugely encouraged on that front. But I'm going to end up agreeing with Corey a little bit here <laughs> that I'm actually the one thing that keeps me going and has kept me going over this last year um, is that, you know, and to relate it back to the article, it, it's not that societies are these things which is, which exist and then and then collapse. Societies are, are, are sites of constant struggle. Um, societies are heaving contradictions and, and, and tangles um, in which different classes and groups uh, fight it out. Um, and that has always been true and that continues to be true. And we have in our society, um, and I think in the world more generally, a um, profoundly destructive plutocratic 
state of affairs, um, where a tiny amount of, of very wealthy people are, are um, determining the lives of, of most of us, and, and the planet has suffered for it, and, and humanity has suffered for it, and every other species on has suffered for it. Um, this summer, we saw the, the birth of the largest protest movement in American history. Um, and so much has happened since then and that I think it's easy to forget the importance of that. More people were on the streets in American cities and towns and small towns than at any other point in American history. Um, and that gives me a great deal of hope uh, that this struggle will continue um, and it will continue no matter what uh, Joe Biden does or doesn't do. Um, and uh, or at least I certainly hope it does. Well, thank you all for that. I, I have to say, you know, it's been a it's been a remarkable week. It's been a remarkable few years talking about this. I believe we've been talking about it in one podcast or another for the past five years. And it's kind of a watershed to get to the point that Donald Trump is defeated. And I share the apprehensions uh, and individual concerns that have been articulated by, by everybody here. Um, but at the end of the day, um, if the most powerful man in the world is not a psychopathic, corrupt, traitorous, narcissistic shithead, that's better for us all than the alternative. And so we've made some progress. There is a window opening up here. It is going to require us to do things better politically as a society than we have had done in the past. There are massive changes that are needed. They're not all gonna come at once. Um, but the past four years have been awful. And uh, uh, the next four years may not be quite so awful. Uh, and uh, in a crowd like this one, that passes for optimism and I'll take it. Um, so thanks to all of you for joining. Uh, obviously there's plenty to discuss and we can get back to a lot of the issues that we used to discuss in the past that are of substance um, about our place in the world and uh, foreign policy and national security and how you make country work. Uh, and that's what we're just going to do, you know, every week, week in and week out as we get into this new period. Uh, we hope you'll join us for that. Go to the DSRnetwork.com to become a member, help support us with that and to look and see what else we got coming and some other kinds of content. Uh, and we look forward to exploring this new, somewhat more hopeful period with you all. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ben, Corey, Rosa, and Ed.